How do you live with mystery? How do you live with things you don't understand? Has there ever been a time in your life when you didn't understand what God was doing, what He was up to? What should we do when God takes us through a confusing season of life? Maybe a dark, difficult season of life. The passage of Scripture that we're looking at together this morning is especially helpful to us when we think about those kinds of questions. One of the things I I appreciate about the Psalms of Ascent, these Psalms that we've been studying, these are are pilgrim songs, right? The people of Israel, they would make their way up to Jerusalem, the temple for worship, and they would sing these songs along the way. And they mirror a number of situations that we face in our life's journey, right? They were headed up to the temple for worship, Mount Zion, and we too, we are headed, the people of God are headed to the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly temple one day. But we face all sorts of different situations in life. And, and these psalms, at least I found in my own experience and reading of them throughout the course of this series, uh, has addressed a number of different situations that we face in life. And, and the one that we find today is counsel for us on how we deal, deal with, with confusing situations, maybe darker, difficult providences that seem to be uh, occurring in the course of our life. H- how do we follow the Lord and hold on to His hand when we don't know where He is leading us. Well, Psalm 131, the psalm that we're looking at together this morning, as I said, gives us help in this. Let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 131, if you haven't done that. Uh, You can find the passage that we're looking at together on page 519 in the Bibles provided. Uh, These psalms of ascent, they were composed at different times in Israel's history. They were likely finally compiled, though, uh, probably after, shortly after the Babylonian captivity. When you get there, you'll see the ascription at the top, the Songs of Ascent. You'll also notice that our psalm has an author. Right? One of the indications that this psalm was written before, really, the time that they were finally compiled after the Babylonian captivity. We see that the author is of David. Now, we don't know when David exactly wrote this psalm in the course of his life. Some ascriptions in the psalms will tell us that this occurred when this thing happened in David's life. But, but not this one. We simply have uh, just of David. This was by David. Uh, So he wrote this at some instance in his life where he had learned humility through what he suffered. When he learned uh, what it meant to trust the Lord in the midst of darkness and difficulty. Uh, As this psalm shows us, David learned to hope in the Lord. Go ahead and read this psalm now. Read Psalm 131. A song of ascent of David. O Lord Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm is so useful to us as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, because on life's road, our, our, our souls can be very storm-tossed. We can step on rocks and trip and stumble. There are difficult things. The road takes a strange turn. We, we don't know where it's going. Sometimes it's hard to put our finger on what is happening and why the Lord ordained for it to happen. Instead of contending with God, this song calls us to be content in God. Sometimes we don't understand God's works and ways. All that we can do is learn humility. Learn to hush our souls and hope in the Lord as we keep walking through the wilderness of this world. 
of this psalm, the great Mr. Spurgeon once said, it is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. Indeed, Mr. Spurgeon must be right. In fact, we probably have to learn the lesson of this psalm over and over and over again in the course of our lives. We have to learn afresh to humble our hearts, to hush our souls, and to hope in our our Lord. Who has learned this perfectly? No one. We learn it over and over again. Everyone has to regularly relearn this psalm. Well, since this psalm needs so frequent learning, and since it takes so long for us to learn, we should start learning it now. We're going to learn it under three headings for these three verses. Number one, humble your heart. That's going to be point number one for verse number one. Number two, hush your soul. Point number two for verse number two. And number three, hope in your Lord. Point number three for verse number three. I'll repeat each of them as we make our way through. I think my second point is going to be the longest for a heads up, if that's helpful. Though sometimes when I say that, it's not actually true. I really mean it to be true. I really do think my second point is going to be the longest. But let's start with the first one because that's where the psalm begins. Humble your heart. Read verse one again. O Lord Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, one of the striking features of this psalm is that it begins with the Lord and ends with the Lord. It begins with the Lord hearing from David, and it ends with David calling all Israel to hope in the Lord. Here's the first lesson that you and I need to learn in humbling our hearts. You, you're dealing with the Lord, with your heart before him. That's who David is speaking to and praying to. It's who who the pilgrims sang to. The first sure way to humble your heart is to remember that the God of heaven hears you when you pray. We should be amazed that the sovereign Lord would so love us and listen to us. It is important to remember who God is and who we are. David prays to the God who has no needs. While David and you and me, we have endless needs. David is dealing with the Lord who created heaven and earth. He is dealing with the Lord who covenanted to bless and redeem His people from all their iniquities. He is dealing with the Lord who condescends to hear His people. When you're confused by what the Lord is doing and why He is doing it, when your heart is storm-tossed, when it's anxious or angry or uncertain, remember who you're dealing with. Better yet, remember who is dealing with you. Remember you are calling out to the Lord who created you. The Lord who has committed to redeem you. And the Lord who has a heart full of compassion toward you. Given who the Lord is and who you are, like David, we should displace haughtiness found in our hearts. David does more than displace it, though, doesn't he? He denies it. My heart is not lifted up, David says. He is emphatically denying pride. He's emphatically denying a haughty heart. A haughty heart is a heart filled kind of with an exalted sense of one's person, one's prominence, one's position. Haughty heart is a heart that's lifted up. It's a prideful heart. We think great thoughts of ourselves, our position, our place, our authority. This is what a lifted heart, lifted up heart is. And haughty hearts, a lifted up heart, a proud heart, is a dangerous heart. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12 tells us, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Pride can bring destruction. 
Pride can also bring distance. So Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Pride can bring destruction. Pride can bring distance. Pride brought sin and death into the world. When Satan first tempted uh, the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden, he appealed to their pride, an exalted sense of self. Satan told Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit, they could be like God. You could raise yourself up, and they could determine what was good and what was evil, like God. So John sought wisely observe, pride is more than the first of seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. For it is the stubborn refusal to let God be God with a corresponding ambition to take His place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Well, are you proud from time to time? Is your heart lifted up from time to time? Do you ever grumble and complain? Are you ever tempted to be dissatisfied and discontent? Do you think that you deserve something different or better than what God has divinely doled out to you? Those may be indications that your heart is lifted up. Beloved, let us all be warned. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5 tells us, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Psalm 101 verse 5 tells us, Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. The Lord promises to oppose the proud. We have all lifted up our hearts. We've all been proud. We've all esteemed ourselves too highly. If we are able to rein pride in, like David says that he had, it is all by the grace and help of God. And that ought to humble us too. David, he denies a haughty heart. You see there also he denies high eyes. He says in the middle of verse 1, my eyes are not raised too high. Now this is different than looking up to the hills to see the Lord and where our help comes from that Psalm 121 taught us about and encouraged us to do. No, high eyes are yet another expression of arrogance and self-importance. In, in many respects, this line in the psalm is simply a parallel expression of the first. It's another way of stating the first. It's another way of saying, I'm refusing, I'm resisting pride. The eyes can give the proud person away. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Remember the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus told in Luke 18. I know some of our kids heard that lesson in Sunday school this morning. In that parable, do you remember what Jesus said about the eyes of the tax collector? He said that the tax collector, the one who was so distraught by his sin, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But a proud person does. Have you ever seen someone raise their eyes up too high? When was the last time someone rolled their eyes at you? Have you ever noticed the path and pattern that those rolled eyes take? They go up and over, right? They rolled their eyes, they raised them, didn't they? They must make that arc. They must go up and around and back down. And when those eyes make that arc, they go over and above you as if to say, I know better than you. I have no need to listen to you. Children, did you know that this is what you are saying with your eyes when you do that to your parents, to an adult, to a coach, a teacher? You have raised your eyes too high. Did you know that when you roll your eyes, you are displaying a haughty heart? Our eyes very often are windows into our hearts. Children, you need to know that God opposes the proud, 
but that he gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6 says that. Children, you need to know that you're not the only ones who've rolled their eyes or raised their eyes too high. Sadly, your parents have too. They've done it before. They've sinned in this way. We've all, sadly, sinned in this way. We have all lifted our hearts up and raised our eyes too high, even against the Lord. But here's good news. By God's grace, Jesus never did. He always honored his earthly father or mother and mother. Uh, and more importantly, he always honored his heavenly father. And because Jesus was sinless, where we have been sinful, we can seek forgiveness for our pride from him. There's forgiveness in Jesus for those who have lifted up their hearts and raised their eyes too high. David, he denies another thing there in the first verse. David has denied pride, but he also denies presumption. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This was David's way of saying that there are some things that are above my pay grade, and I'm content with leaving those things to the Lord. This is uh, similar to what Job said at the end of the book of Job. Remember, after the Lord had worked all of his purposes out, purposes which Job could not understand in the moment, those dark, mysterious, and providences that God had carried Job through, Job finally confessed at the end of it all in Job 42, verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. See, Job was acknowledging his limited knowledge, his limited sight, his limited understanding of all that the Lord was doing. It would have been better if Job had kept his mouth closed and like David, kept his mind quiet from trying to pry into the mysterious providence of God and really sit in judgment upon God for what he was doing. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we can't ask God why in the course of our lives, right? When we go through a difficult, dark, mysterious providence, it doesn't mean that we can't ask God why. In fact, a number of the Psalms ask that question. God, why have you forsaken me? Right? We read about that from David in another Psalm. We can certainly ask that question. What this line in the Psalm is getting at, what it means is that David is not presuming to sit in judgment upon God for his providence. David recognizes that God does not owe him an account for all of his dealings and decisions. We cannot demand that God give us an explanation for all that he is doing. That would be to lift ourselves up too high and really to request something of the Lord that we are not entitled to. It would be to occupy a place too high, to occupy ourselves with things too great and too wonderful for us. Part of what David is saying is that he does not presume to sit in judgment upon God and his promise, promises and his providence. He's not sitting in judgment upon God for the decisions he's made. He's not judging God for the place that he's put him in, the people that he's put him among, the possessions that he has or doesn't have, or the prominence that he lacks. And we must do the same. After all, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, reminds us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things that are beyond our comprehension. There are some things that are a mystery to us in the course of our lives. Precisely because God has not disclosed all of His providence to us. Our calling as Christians is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And to live according to His revealed will. According to the things that He has laid down for us in His Word. That means to reject haughtiness. We must not complain against the Lord for the place that He's put us in. Maybe you don't like living in Northern Virginia. Well, you cannot complain to the Lord about that. 
Uh, part of it means is we must not complain against the Lord for the people that He's put among us or in relationship with. You cannot complain about those pesky church members that you're supposed to love. You ought not to complain about your spouse. You ought to thank the Lord for those people that He's placed in your lives. We must not complain against the Lord for the possessions that we have or don't have. We must not complain against the Lord for the position that we have or have not attained. We must not complain against the Lord for the prominence that we've been refused or the prominence we've been required to take. We must not complain against the Lord for the productivity that we've been not, not been able to achieve. In other words, we must not complain against the Lord for His providential purposes in our lives. For in our pride we are displaying a haughty heart as we sit in judgment upon the Lord. The Lord knows the future and He knows how He's working His purposes out. That is for Him to know and for Him to show as He pleases. Pride tempts us to reverse our roles with God. To tell Him how the future will go because we're really in charge and really on the throne. No, our pilgrim path is the path of humility. Holding on to the hand of the Lord and letting Him pull us along. Pull us to the places to know the people that He has intended to take us to and to meet. Friends, this is part of how we humble our heart. Like David, we accept our limits and adore God for His Lordship. We accept that we are finite and we rejoice that God is infinite. We accept that we don't know all things, but we rejoice that God does. We accept that we are not all powerful, but we rejoice that God is. We accept that we don't see the end from the beginning. We don't even see the end from the middle, but God does. He knows the end from even before the beginning. We accept the place, the people, the position, the prominence, the productivity, and all the other P's that you can think of. That God has doled out to us because they're good gifts to us from Him. Good gifts from His hands. Even the mysteries that we don't understand. We humble our hearts by remembering who God is. The Lord who loves us and He's done great things for us in Jesus Christ. He can be trusted. We humble our hearts by remembering who we are. Finite and fallen sinners loved by the God of grace. We humble our hearts by remembering where we are. We have not yet made it to glory. We're still making our pilgrimage in this fallen world where perfect bliss can ne'er be found. We humble our hearts by remembering where we're going to glory. And who will make sure that we get there? The God of glory. When we remember who God is, who we are, where we are, and where we're going, we can rest content in our God. Which is what David turns to address in the second verse. After David says that he has humbled his heart, he also says that he has hushed his soul. And this is what we should learn too. Hush your soul. This is our second word. Read the second verse again. Psalm 131, verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The second verse of this psalm introduces a contrast to the first. You can see with that introduction, that word, but. The proud soul is a loud soul. But that is not what David has. David has a hushed soul. If David has hushed his soul, then he must have had a loud and proud soul before. The implicit reality that David is pointing out to us is this. Pride brings agitation, anger, and anxiety, whereas humility brings serenity. You realize this. This is one of the biggest lessons I think I've learned from this psalm over the course of this past week. Pride brings agitation, anger, 
and anxiety, whereas humility brings serenity. If you find yourself agitated, if you find yourself uh, struggling with anger and anxiety, then it may just be that you're struggling with pride. The pathway to overcoming agitation, anger, and anxiety is through repentance and putting the sin of pride to death. It's also through faith, trusting God like a weaned child. We'll think more about this in a minute, but I first want to uh, more fully explain to you why pride brings agitation, anger, and anxiety. Why is a loud soul a proud soul? Why can you not quiet your mind sometimes? This is the best answer I think that I've come up with. We struggle with loud souls. We, we struggle to quiet our minds sometimes because pride grasps for the prominence not given. So we murmur and complain in our souls. Pride grasps for the service not given. So we stew in bitterness and anger. Uh, we review the conversation over and over again. Pride grasps for the control not given. So we fret and we worry. Maybe you are agitated when you're not noticed. Uh, you've worked hard. You've waited patiently, or so you think. And you keep getting passed over unnoticed. So you're agitated that you're not given the promise you think you deserve. Well, perhaps you're struggling with pride. Maybe you are, are angry when you're not served. Maybe you actually possess a position of authority, such as parental authority or the authority of a supervisor, or the authority of a husband, or the educational authority. You have degrees like in this particular speciality. Or, or, um, or maybe you possess pastoral authority, but you're ignored by those under your authority. Instead of honoring and obeying you, maybe those under your authority disobey. And so you're angered. And you're angry not that they have disobeyed God, or the office protocols, or the student handbook, but that they've disobeyed you. Perhaps you're struggling with pride. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you feel like things are out of control. And if you could just control the calendar or the context, or if you could fix just a few details, or if you could just tell others a few more things that they need to know so they will behave properly in the right circumstance, or if others would just do it your way. Or if you could just arrange your room, your desk, your office in a specific way, it would be better. Or if you could adjust your relationship to someone in a certain way. If they would just conform to a particular pattern of behavior. Or if you could just know how this event or conversation was going to play out. Or a project, how it was going to turn out beforehand. Then it would be okay. If you just had just a, a little bit more control, perhaps you'd be less anxious. Beloved, maybe you're struggling with pride. Agitation, anger, and anxiety, I think, bring the noise that's so often difficult to quiet down in our minds. So agitation, you're busy talking to yourself about how you were overlooked. Anger, you're busy talking to yourself about others have not obeyed you, followed you, considered your feelings. Anxiety, you're busy talking to yourself, trying to figure out how you can fix and control the situation. A proud heart is a loud heart because we feel entitled to prominence or obedience or the control we've not been given. Pride leads us to being stirred up, often complaining or mentally communicating. And at the end of the day, we're complaining against God and His providence. Pride works against peace, whereas humility works to bring serenity. Pride questions God's decisions and His devotion. Questions His decisions for us and His devotion to us. Humility trusts God's decisions and God's devotion. A prideful heart says, God, you have not given what is best. God, if you loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. 
A humble heart says, God, you are all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, and all your ways toward me are loving. This is why a humble soul is a hushed soul. This is why a humble soul can endure mystery and difficult and dark providence. This is what David must have remembered about God, that God is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, and that God's ways are all-loving toward David. This is how he must have quieted his soul. The psalm does not proclaim the perfections of David. I wonder if you've thought about that. You're thinking, okay, wait a minute. David is talking about how he's not been too prideful, how he's not been too haughty, how he's hushed his soul. Well, all of that implies that he's gone through seasons of being proud, having his eyes too high, and that he's had to work against that. He's revealed his sin in a certain way. And still he's revealing the pathway to peace. He has trusted God like a weaned child trusted his mother. He says that there. You see that? Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now you all know what a weaned child is, I trust. A child is weaned when his mother stops nursing him from the breast and starts feeding him solid food. And the picture that David presents of the weaned child is one who is resting in his mother's arms, quiet, calm, and content. He is hushed. And the words for calm and quiet in verse 2 refer to leveling out or kind of stilling or something being still. So David has kind of had to try to iron out the wrinkles in his soul. He's trying to level out the waves of the storm in his heart. That's what he's had to do. David is saying that he has quieted and smoothed out the storm waters of his heart. He has soothed his soul. But how? By trusting God and being content with God. In this analogy, the child has not only gone through weaning, but he's also with his mother. Those who have seen a child go through this weaning process know that it's actually, it's actually not a peaceful process. Right? It ends in peace, but it begins with agitation, with anger, and with anxiety. When you think of a child going through the weaning process, it's clear. The child believes he is being denied a necessity of life. And perhaps you felt that way with God before. Perhaps you felt like, I'm going through something, Lord, and I feel like you're denying me something that I, I actually need. Well, that's what this child is going through, through the weaning process. Perhaps in your pride, your agitation, anger, anxiety, you are tempted to believe that God is withholding something necessary for you. But the scriptures tell us that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, from those who belong to him. Psalm 84, 11. Change is hard for anyone, isn't it? Change is hard for me. I don't like change. I've been parting my, way, my hair this way since the 1920s. So I, I want to keep it going that same direction. It's hard for a child, though, going through the weaning process. He has to learn to trust his mother. He has to trust that she knows what is best and that she actually cares for him. He has to trust that she will provide all that he needs for all of his needs at the right time and in the right way. One of the things that's so difficult for the child in the midst of this process is that he doesn't understand that the weaning is actually for his good. So if, um, say, say for example, uh, for the moms who have weaned their children here, if a mom decided, okay, it's time to begin putting this baby on solid food, so I'm going to sit down, I'm going to explain it to him. Uh, I'm going to explain to him that he, he actually needs to be weaned to move from milk to solid food. It's going to help uh, strengthen him. Uh, it, it's going to help him in, in these ways. He, he's going to have more strength. He's actually going to be more satisfied with the food too. Uh, it's going to supply him with, with a longer uh, ability of time to actually sleep. 
And so this mom sits down and she uh, gives him this lecture complete with PowerPoint presentation, graphs, charts, a YouTube explainer. Do you think that that child at such a young age is going to understand what she's saying to him? No. What's so fascinating about this weaning analogy is that when the child is weaned, it is not as though he has actually come to fully understand what has happened. He doesn't understand that his caloric intake has increased. He doesn't understand this affords him greater strength and energy and health. He doesn't understand the biological and physiological realities, the importance of weaning. If we could put it like this, he hasn't understood the mystery of his suffering and starving from his vantage point, only to be more satisfied than he has ever been before. But what he has learned is that his mother can be trusted because she has led him to a deeper satisfaction than continuing to nurse at the breast. Sometimes God does not explain to us what he is doing. And even if we did, we might just be too immature to understand it. Beloved, whatever God is doing, and for whatever reason he is doing it, we can trust him. We can trust that he is leading, guiding, and working for our good. Think, think about it. Could it be that whatever the trial or the circumstance you don't understand in your life is required of God for your greater satisfaction in Him? Could it be that the confusing situation or the difficult and mysterious providence that you are undergoing is the Lord weaning you off a love of this world and bringing you into a greater trust, contentment, and satisfaction in Him and closer to Him? If God requires something of us in our lives, including a kind of weaning process, a mysterious providence like that, then it's for our flourishing and for our faith. We don't want to push off the weaning process. We want to welcome it in humility. A providence too marvelous for us then. We must trust that it's for our faith and flourishing. We must believe that He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will also give with us everything we need. Graciously give us all things. Romans 8.32 I think, I think experientially, perhaps the children among us are actually closer to understanding this reality. Right? Children, I, I think you get this. You, you don't always understand your, what your parents are doing. But you've learned to trust them. So sometimes we, we get in the car and we do not tell our kids where we are going. Uh, we're, we're taking them somewhere. And of course, naturally, they, they start to ask questions, right? As any children would. This probably happens in your cars. Where are we going? Uh, how long is it going to be till we get there? I'm a little hungry. Uh, those are all natural, appropriate questions. And my answers, I'm sure, are very frustrating to my children. Uh, my answer is very brief. Trust me. Uh, children, have you had that experience? Have your parents ever said that to you in the car? Tr trust me. Uh, I'm, I'm leading to you someplace good. And, and I think children get this in, in other ways, too. Right, children? Um, you don't always understand why your parents are making you drink the disgusting medicine when you're sick. But you do know this. They, they love you. They've lived longer than you, so they probably have a little more wisdom than you in life experience. Right? And, and because you know who they are, and because you know of their loving commitments to you, you know that they're doing they're doing their best, and they're doing what they understand is uh, for your best, for your good. Sometimes, your parents are even doing that when you are agitated, angry, or hangry, as the cool kids say today, or anxious. Um, 
Now, your parents are not perfect like God, but they are trying to actually picture God to you, and you should trust them. And part of learning to trust them actually will equip you for learning to trust God. When things you don't understand in life happen and take place. Christian, you don't always understand what God is doing. Do you understand that you actually need, sometimes, you actually need the, the, the sufferings and the sorrows of this life for the strengthening of your soul, for your growth in godliness and Christ-likeness? And Christian, do you know who this, notice who, who this child is with in the psalm? Right? He's with his mother. Not only can God be trusted as he weans us off a love of the world and a love of sin, but it should be enough for us to simply be with our God in his arms, wrapped in his love and care for us. The ultimate consolation of this psalm is that we are in the care of our good, our great, and our gracious God as we walk along life's road. And sometimes the road of suffering and soothing our souls in this life is a really long road. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, this is great. We've got a a psalm that's going to help me when I don't understand what's going on in life, and I'll walk out of here fixed. That is the wrong thought to have right now. This is a really long road. Uh, I've got a newsflash for you. It might take some time for the Lord to teach you how to hush your soul. Remember that David is saying this on the other side of the weaning process. He's on the other side of the agitation, the anger, and anxiety that he was feeling. He's gone through the restlessness to rest in God. We actually can't avoid this process in our Christian lives. We can't go around this process in our Christian's lives. We've got to go through it. Think about David and what he experienced in his life for a minute. Think about the man who wrote this psalm. It was a really long road for David to begin to reign as king. So from the time that David was anointed in private by Samuel as king, from that time to when he publicly took the throne in Israel, roughly 10 years had passed. During that time, he was hunted by Saul. He wandered in the wilderness and in caves. Before his exaltation to the throne, David underwent a prolonged season of humiliation. Do you think during those 10 years that David was agitated? Can you imagine him saying or thinking to himself, man, I've got to move to a new cave again. Why won't Saul just give up? Come on, Lord, would you just put an end to this already? Don't you think during those 10 years, David was angry? Can't you imagine him saying to himself, Saul is not the right king. Samuel has anointed the right king. It's my time, my turn to take the throne. Lord, you promised that I would reign. Why have you not acted? Why aren't you keeping your promise? Don't you think during those 10 years, David was anxious? Can't you imagine him saying or thinking to himself, Lord, I'm never going to survive this. I'm trapped here in enemy territory. I'm being chased by Saul, and now I've been chasing in enemy territory. I'm never going to survive this. How am I going to get out of this? This situation's out of control. The only way that David could have endured that season of humiliation is if he trusted God and learned to trust God over and over and over again. The only way that David could have endured that season of humiliation is if his heart was not lifted up, if his eyes were not raised too high, and if he did not occupy himself with things too great and too marvelous for him. He would have had to say, Lord, I I don't understand this. I don't understand what's going on here. I know your promises. I know you're going to keep them. And I've got to trust you. Help me to trust you. Over and over again, he would have had to humble his heart 
and hush his soul. Over and over again, he'd have had to trust that God would bring about his will in his way, in his time. The pattern of humble trust was followed by David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus was humble of heart, wasn't he? Of all people, Jesus could say that he was gentle and humble of heart. Of all people, Jesus entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. He humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, as we read earlier from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus not only calmed actual storms, but he also calmed his heart, didn't he? Think of his trials before the Jews and before Pilate. He remained in control of his soul because he knew his heavenly Father was in complete control. Do you remember what the Apostle Peter said about Jesus concerning his trials? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22-23, he said this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father, even doing so with his last breath. So in Luke 23, verse 46, we read, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When you are anxious, do you pray this? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Are you willing to place your whole life into the hands of God? I wonder, do you recognize that your soul will not actually be hushed until you have faith like a child? Indeed, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus taught us this is what we need. So keeping one finger here, if you can, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 823. What we're about to see in Matthew chapter 18 uh, is that we can't even enter into the kingdom of God unless we trust God with childlike faith. When you get there, uh, you might be surprised to find that just as Psalm 131 connects pride, humility, and childlike faith, so does this chapter, so does this passage. Take a look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. This is what we read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' disciples, they were concerned about who would be at the head of the pack in heaven. But more fundamentally, they needed to worry about getting into heaven in the first place. Right? They assumed they were a shoe-in for the kingdom. But were they? Right? You see there, after calling this child into their, their midst, Jesus says to his ambitious disciples, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A change in their lives needed to take place. They needed to repent of their pride and vainglory. Jesus says that they needed to turn and become like something they were not. Here they were. Grown men with a small child in their midst. A small child who at that moment displayed far more humility and trust than they did. Jesus called a little child to come. 
and he came. A little child, not his own. He heard Jesus' voice. He heard Jesus call to him, and he obeyed. The disciples, they needed to humble themselves like that little child. They needed to listen to Jesus and obey Jesus like that little child. They needed to trust Jesus just like that little child. They would need to express their total dependence upon him for their salvation. If you desire a hushed soul, which is to say, if you desire a kingdom-bound soul, a heaven-bound soul, it begins here with trusting in Jesus, with childlike faith. Friend, remember who God is. He's the sovereign and loving creator of the world and all that is in it. He made you and everyone else in His image. He made us to trust Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to give our lives entirely into His hands. We need to remember who God is and who we are. We are creatures who have actually rebelled against our Creator. You and I have sinned against God. We have proudly raised ourselves up against Him. We've all lived our own way rather than His way. We have lived our own way, seeking our own prominence, our own power, our own position, and our own place on the throne of our lives. And God will not endure our rebellion forever. He has promised to punish all iniquity, transgression, and sin. He has told us plainly that the wages of sin is death, eternal death, and that we will be paid those wages unless someone else receives our payment for our sin in our place. Remember who God is. Remember who you are. Remember what Jesus has done. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience unto God the Father. Jesus never sinned. And because he was sinless, he was hated by sinners in his life. He was eventually put to death on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus suffered for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him like a little child. Because Jesus trusted God the Father unto the end, God the Father vindicated him by raising him from the dead on the third day. Because Jesus took the lowest place, God the Father exalted Him to the highest place. And all who turn from their sins, believing in Jesus, believing that He lived for them, died for them, was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of their sins, will be welcomed into Jesus' eternal kingdom. Friend, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Trust Him with childlike faith. Obey Him when He calls and commands, even when you don't know where that's leading you. Because you know that He's good, and that He loves you, and He cares for you. Obey Him. Do it in a hurry and do it happily. Remember what Jesus will do for all who belong to him. He will send his spirit to help us make our pilgrimage home to heaven. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will perfectly preserve our faith and protect our souls until he returns. So you should trust him today and always. Hope in your Lord. This is actually how the psalm concludes. So let's turn back and look at the final verse of our psalm. Turn back to Psalm 131. That's page 519 that the Bible's provided if you lost your place. Here we see that you are to, we are to hope in our Lord. Hope in your Lord. Read verse 3 again. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Here, David is calling the people of Israel to the same faith that he has. We thought about hope last week. We thought about Psalm 130. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's not a felicitous feeling with a loose grip on future events as though they may or may not happen. Hope in the Bible is rock-solid confidence in God. And think of how helpful this psalm would have been to those pilgrims who were on the road to Jerusalem. Think of those Jews who were in exile and who were wondering whether or not God would really keep His promises. They were wondering, would God really bring us out of exile? 
We don't understand the, the dark providence of exile. They were wondering, will God really send his Messiah? That exile was disorienting. But what did Israel need to do? Complain against the Lord for his injustice? No, he was perfectly just in punishing Israel for their idolatry. Israel needed to humble their hearts for they had sinned against the Lord. Israel needed to hush their souls and learn the lesson that they were called to worship and serve their God only. Israel needed to turn and once again hope in their Lord. He was the only one who could save them. Israel needed to hope in God now and hope in God forevermore. Remember the difficulty and the dark providence will not last forever. But its design is to prepare you for forever. Brothers and sisters, remember that it will not go on for forever. Hope in God today. And when you get through that difficult providence and are yet faced with another one, hope in Him now and forevermore and always. That's what David is calling the people of God to do. That's what he's calling us to do. And this is something that's actually, I think, really special that you need to see about this psalm. God uses David's difficulty to teach his people that he can be depended upon. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have this psalm and its lesson because David endured difficulty and lived to tell about it. In other words, part of God's purpose in the difficult providence that David endured, through which he learned to humble his heart, through which he learned to hush his soul, through which he learned to hope in his Lord, was so that he could pass on that lesson to the people of God. Part of God's purpose in teaching David the lesson of this psalm was so that you could learn it too. David had to experientially learn this psalm so that so many of the people of God who followed him could learn. In the words of a great hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Have you ever considered that one reason that you have to go through affliction may be so that you can help another believer learn to humble their heart, to hush their soul, and to hope in their God. Paul tells us that this is one of the very reasons of God's purposes, one of the very purposes of God in our afflictions, for our afflictions. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that... Here's the purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Sometimes God is pleased to use our past experience of suffering to help comfort others in the midst of their suffering. So don't waste your suffering. Learn the lesson that God is seeking to teach you in it. And when you're suffering, share that you're suffering. How else can somebody who has suffered before come alongside you and help you unless they actually know that you're going through that season of suffering? And recognize this too about your suffering. God, He's bringing you through this trial to help you and to fit you for glory and to help somebody else down the road.
So dear Christian, as we conclude, remember that when you face seemingly dark and disorienting difficulties along life's road, when you're faced with mystery that you don't understand, remember you are in the arms of God. Humble your heart. Remember who God is. He's your creator and your covenant Lord. He has set His love upon you. His love will sometimes meet (coughs) leading you to places that you do not know and do not understand and maybe don't even want to go. Set aside pride. Curb your complaining. Assign agitation, anger, and anxiety to the ash heap in repentance because your God knows best. Hush your soul because God, the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God is making decisions concerning your life precisely because He is devoted to you and dedicated to seeing your faith grow and fitting you for glory. Do not despise the process of learning to move from restlessness to resting in God, content in Him. For what He is doing is drawing you closer to Himself. As you learn that God is taking you by the hand, And yes, sometimes dragging you home to glory, kicking and screaming. Look around and help others hope in your God. Look around and comfort the afflicted with the comfort that you yourself have received. Tell them how you went through that weaning process and what you learned. Tell them that God can be trusted. Tell them the lessons that you've learned about His faithfulness to His promises and to you. And above all, let us remember that our Lord Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation, lived with a humble heart his whole life long. For us, our Lord Jesus, and for our salvation, our Lord Jesus entrusted himself to his heavenly Father his whole life long, even through death. Remember that Jesus is your Lord and your whole hope is in him. And that is a solid hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you're in charge, that you're in control, and we pray and ask that you would grant us humble hearts, not just to put up with that truth, but to gladly embrace that truth. Father, we pray and ask that when we are faced with difficulty, with disorienting provinces, with strange turns on life's road, we pray for the grace to learn this psalm and live this psalm. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for reminding us that you can be trusted and hoped in. And we pray and ask that you would help us to learn this lesson and to joyfully share it with others too. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.